I'd like to talk to you about the Tenth Commandment. It's not the Ten Commandments, but that's the Tenth Commandment. Um, in public speaking class, you learn about something called the primacy recency effect. That's a big term, but that's the idea that if you're given a list of items to remember, you'll remember the, you know, if you have a list of ten things, you'd remember best the first thing and the last thing. Um, that's just how it works. But uh, I don't know if this commandment ends up at the end of the list because it's uh, supposed to be more memorable or not. I, I can't say that that would be a reason, but it is memorable for that reason. And I wouldn't want you to think at all that it was, came 10th in the list because it was kind of, of decreasing importance in the Ten Commandments. And so we'll tag this one on at the end because it's not so serious. It's just as important. Now, don't worry, no quiz follows if you're like going, if you didn't see our slick advertising for the sermon and don't, don't uh, realize what this is. The, there's no quiz on the Ten Commandments. The Tenth Commandment is, uh, is easy, and I'll read it to you. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his, act, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And like all the Ten Commandments, it shows up in a list in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. This word coveting, when you think about modern English usage, um, we don't really, unless you're around pious people, you won't hear the word covet so much anymore. And so, a lot, like a lot of words that do that in the scripture, it takes kind of on a Sunday school patina. It's slightly quaint. It's got a halo around it. And uh, you think, well, what, what is coveting? It, it seems exalted or, or, or like a special category. Even in our English Bibles, the, 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 the word gets moved around a little bit. Uh, in English translation, they're really three words in the original biblical languages in, uh, 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 that come into play that get translated at some point or another in various English translations as coveting or covetousness or covet. And so you've got that going on. And the concept of this idea of coveting reaches beyond even those words. Because when you think about it, this idea of coveting, and what it means is it starts to blend into things like greed, and so sometimes those words that are in the original languages get translated that way. Um, they're not exactly the same thing, greed and coveting, but they're similar. And you can start pairing the idea of coveting with a lot of other kind of related terms that maybe aren't exactly the same thing, but seem to tie in pretty tightly, pretty closely, pretty often. So that when you talk about coveting, greed shows up, lust shows up, envy or the more famously forgotten one, gluttony. Um, when we talk about envy, of course, jealousy. And jealousy deserves a sermon all of its own. I mean, have you, have you ever um, uh, allowed yourself to mess up a relationship or a possible friendship because of some sense of jealousy? So you see, these words have a lot of overlap and that, that shows up in English translations. And the word, the word covet might or might not not be there uh, in the English I say they're not the same because you could, of course, you could be greedy or lustful without, without coveting. I mean, it might be that uh, you're not necessarily desiring what someone else has as much as you just want more for yourself. But I would bet that coveting is kind of a, a starting place for a lot of those problems. Now, of course, the, the Bible casts 
all its language from that time, Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy 5, into the world of its time, because I doubt very much anybody sitting here, I'd be surprised anyway, if you were coveting your neighbor's servants. I mean, your neighbors don't have servants, do they? And uh, most of us, at least people like me, I don't really have much use for a donkey or an ox. (laughs) It's just not something I would uh, desire if you had it. Now, I suppose your neighbor's wife or your husband, those are somewhat timeless examples that will will carry through all time and all cultures. But uh, you can easily make the applications to your own world, though, can't you? Donkeys, oxen, servants, these were assets, financial assets. They gave status. They made life easier. They, They gave power to people. And so the commandment really can just work for us because it sums it all up in the last phrase. You won't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. So what is coveting? I've mentioned some words that are similar, and I said they're not exactly the same, but similar. What is coveting, covet, covetousness, those kinds of terms? Now, a very famous theologian from the 19th century, his name was Charles Hodge, put it, put it in, a, in a quotation I'm about read, to read to you. It's pretty thick and, uh, and heavy, but it's a really good summary of coveting, and so don't tune out over some of the, the 19th century language. I'll, I'll camp out on it for a minute or two and so uh, we can all uh, grasp what he's saying. He says it well. So here comes Hodge. Thou shall not inordinately desire what thou has not, and especially what belongs to thy neighbor. It includes the positive command to be contented with the allotments of providence and the negative injunction not to repine or complain on account of the dealing of God with us or to envy the lot or possession of others. Now, as I've often said, they just don't write them like that anymore. Uh, that was a Bible commentary. Probably lots of, you know, everyday Christians who, you know, were interested we could read. I said that um, coveting is related to greed and also lust. And the connection might be, um, uh, as Hodge describes it, inordinate desire. An inordinate desire. Inordinate means what? Out of order. Unrestrained. Too big, inappropriate, not right for the occasion or the person. And Hodge uses what was the, even him must have been quaint language, the famous old thou shalt not kind of approach to things. But I think he's quick to say it's not just don't do this because I said so. That's not how the commandments work, is it? The com- commandment carries with this idea of not complaining about what God's provision for us is, for me as well as not envying whatever he provided for you or what he provides for others. So you've got these overlapping terms in front of us. Um, coveting, it's tie-in, greed, lust, envy, jealousy, gluttony. And you see that with the way Hodge explains it, it is a discontent with God personally. You're ultimately saying in coveting, God is not taking care of me. He is in some way unjust in his provision. See, you see that coveting in that tenth commandment covers a lot of kind of dark territory down in the human psyche, doesn't it? There's something complex going on there. Now, before I keep elaborating on that, I, uh, there's obviously a difference between coveting on the one hand and admiring 
emulating, striving for a better life, for example, attempting to do the same thing another person did that you've taken on as a model. It's okay to imitate, at least to some degree, someone you think would be a great example. Well, how could it be otherwise? I mean, from childhood on, we, we all seek to emulate our heroes, don't we? We're not talking about that. That can be healthy. There's a difference between coveting and trying to improve your situation. So, once again, coveting is not to sit back passively and stoically and accept your lot in life and just sit there like, oh, I guess that's just my miserable lot in life. I'm not going to do anything. The opposite of coveting isn't that kind of passivity or inactivity. The opposite of coveting is to trust God to help you find your way to your place. The Bible never tells you to wallow in degenerate situations, not to anybody, ever. You don't have to settle for anything that's demeaning or destructive or dangerous in your life. So if you're sick, of course you want to get better and you'll try. If you're poor, of course you want to free yourself from poverty. If you're being exploited, of course you want to stand up to it. But that's not coveting. That's something else. Coveting is an inordinate desire, the one that's out of order, inappropriate, and it's so deep in us. I've used the term greed as a companion term, companion concept, but think about greed. I mean, we instantly go to money, don't we? But you can be greedy for all sorts of things. Money's just one of the things on the list. And what is greed? An intense, selfish desire. It wants more than what is necessary, more than what is reasonable, more than what is healthy, and more than what is even just, because greed has that element that says, um, I'll get it, even if it's at your expense. Greed wants a bigger share, and it'll take from you. So think about the things you can be greedy for. Money's one of them, of course, but how about fame? How about power? How about sex? How about food or property? You can be greedy for security. You can be greedy to have certain kinds of experiences and thrills. You can be greedy to have comfort, to, de- to demand ease or even fun for yourself. You can be greedy about all sorts of things. And so often that greed is launching with a kind of coveting. I see it somewhere else and I want that because you've got it. Well... Elton Trueblood, who founded Yokefellows Prison Fellowship, among many of his other accomplishments. Now, he's not 19th century. His language is a little easier to follow. Uh, But he says this, So great is the power of greed in men's lives that we shall never overcome it wholly as long as we are finite men. We cannot eradicate it, but we can learn to recognize it in its various disguises and find some ways of living in which the power it presents is balanced by an equal and opposite power. Now remember that that last line of his, to find a power that will balance it, that's equal and opposite. I want to come back to that. I want to come back to uh, Elton Trueblood and that quotation at the very end of the sermon. So hold on to that idea. What is that power? Well, think again about the problems of coveting. 
why did it make the top 10? You know, <laughs> when you think about that, you could, there's a listing, the evil that we all do and that's inside of us. Why did coveting show up in the top 10? Well, what can you do about it? If it's so deeply ingrained in us, it's kind of a, something almost that we can't avoid, then, then what can you do about it? But it is evil, and it must be rooted out. Jesus was talking about food laws uh, in the Jewish faith when he said the following, but his commands show what he thinks of coveting just because of the list that he puts it in. This is uh, from Mark chapter 7. From within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Listen, there's a little bit of a digression here, but our view of what constitutes serious sin is warped in the modern church. It is very selective, and you might say that our view of sin has itself become sinful. We get it. Theft, murder, adultery, those are the juicy sins, right? Those are the ones you have to worry about. But when does coveting ever get put on the list or foolishness? But it's in the same list, isn't it? Of those things which defile us. Those, what does it mean to be defiled? It means to be pulled away from the presence of God in a, in a sense that poisons and contaminates the relationship that cannot endure and will not last into eternity. It's got to go. If you want an eternity with Christ, it's got to be eliminated. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Now, it's interesting. You didn't hear the word coveting in there, did you? But you did see the terms evil desire and greed. That short little list in Colossians is interesting because it takes both the Greek words that are used and directly translated into coveting and renders them as something else. It renders them as uh, both words. In one case, evil desire, and the other is greed. It's not immediately obvious in that passage to, to most of us when we just read past it how, how it constitutes idolatry. So these things amount to idolatry. How is coveting idolatry? Well, I think it shows the intensity of your relationship to the things that you covet, doesn't it? You've made a false god and you want to serve that god. It gets at two ideas, really, that we've already thought about. Coveting repudiates God's provision and whatever it is we are coveting becomes kind of a god, an idol that we're willing to serve to get it. And so idolatry is, is part of the picture. Another interesting passage that puts, puts coveting in perspective comes from Paul in the book of Romans, chapter 7. Paul's using here coveting to make a critical point about Jew, the Jewish law, the, the law of Moses, you might say. But when you think about it, it's true of all laws, all moral law everywhere in the universe, whether Christian, Jewish, or pagan. Now, I'm drawing the passage just a bit from its context, but I, don't, I think it's fair use. I don't think I'm abusing Romans 7 when Paul says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. 
That was another one where the, the reasoning can be hard to follow, I mean, for, for, for us as we think about it. Um, how does having the law provoke sin? Well, in, in the sense, I think it is, well, it, 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 it identifies sin and therefore puts it on the list. That would be one element here. But uh, I suppose there's something even more perverse in the human mind and heart with this passage. You say to a person, you shouldn't do that, and a fair number of us, I cannot exclude myself, will try to just because you said I shouldn't. Maybe you don't work that way. I do, and I have since childhood. <laughs> you get it. The concept of the forbidden fruit, that, word ex- that idea exists and haunts our literature and our folk wisdom for a reason, and it's in play there. We want things just because we're told we can't have them. Now, some people have gone so far as to think that uh, Paul was speaking autobiographically in Romans chapter 7, that uh, his recognition of this, this problem inside himself was uh, what, what drives him to realize the impossibility of any kind of moral perfection in his life. But most people say, well, that's kind of past what you can draw out of that passage or know about Paul. But, but when you think about it, it brings up a very interesting point for us. Some of the Ten Commandments can be turned into what is called positive law without really any kind of mediation or, or no problem whatsoever, right? You can have a commandment and then a positive law, like a law in the books, a law that gets enforced, you know, sends you to jail or, or worse. You say, don't murder, well, don't murder. Don't, don't kill, uh, you know, don't kill, don't, don't steal. You can have a law against that, of course, and it can be both a, a moral kind of religious law and a positive law is the term they'll use for this, kind of a, a law that, that functions kind of in, on earth. You could have laws against idolatry, for example. You can even have, uh, you know, the fourth commandment, right, the, the, the Sabbath commandment. You can even have laws about that. When I was a, a boy in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania had its blue laws. They, they were kind of fading at that point, but there were all kinds of things you couldn't do on Sunday. You know, it just, it just was, in, I don't know, nothing was open, it seemed. Nobody went shopping and all kinds of things were, were different then. The blue laws have largely been, been, been eliminated, but they're, they're in living memory, as, at least as long as I'm still breathing. Um, you can have a positive law about all kinds of things, but how do you have a positive law about coveting? When you have a, a, you know, a government committee that knocks on your door and comes and interviews you every week to see if you've been desiring what you shouldn't desire, <laughs> well, you know, if it led you to stealing or killing or even adultery, you could have a law there, but you could be covetous in your heart. You could be full of coveting, absolutely full of it, without ever breaking a single positive law. Actually, you could be a terribly covetous person and still be an outstanding church member. Nobody would be able to see into you and understand that about you. Your wife, your husband, your children might not even know about inordinate desire. It's down inside you. It doesn't translate to positive laws. It's such an easily hidden sin. And it gets its power uh, from that and from another thing, which is the, the, the great teenage moral justification of all time. You know it. Everyone's doing it. <laughs> Count on it. The, the person on, sitting on your left or right has some coveting in them. It's, it's just in us. Well, 
So how do you keep each other in line even with this? You know, I, I don't know. No, I don't ever remember a Christian brother or sister walking up to me and saying, how are you doing on that coveting issue of yours? <laughs> it's, it's never happened to me. I don't suppose it's uh, happened to you either. Social disapproval won't work. Well, consider this. Um, coveting is a predisposition to many sins, to adultery, to theft, even to murder. It can exhibit itself in greed, and if you feel that those are all kind of highfalutin sins that you don't commit very often, consider that coveting leads you to self-centeredness, and I think you'll find that you are not innocent. James chapter 4 says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit adultery. Or excuse me, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So one problem is where coveting leads you. It leads you out into really dark territory. But the other problem is the one that Hodge identified. It is a great battlefield for our faith in God, where faith becomes personal, not just going to church and marching through the the spiritual life, but believing that God is there and taking care of me. Coveting is a repudiation of your belief that God cares for you, that provides for you. This isn't easy. No one would suggest it is. This is part of working out your faith in fear and trembling. There's no question. Some of us have hard lives. Some of us face poverty, disease. Some people have had to live through abuse of one sort or another. Some of us are going to die what, by earthly standards, can only be understood as an untimely death, an unfortunate time or way to go. So it's easy if you're in those situations of of pain of brokenness to look at someone else's life and covet it, isn't it? Uh, uh, it's easy to say, well, why don't I have what you have? Why, why can't I be you for, <laughs> for a, a week? <laughs> just give me some relief here. You know, why, why does God like you better, not like me so much? Why, why do I have what I have versus you have what you have? Now, once again, there's nothing wrong with aspiring to and laboring for changes in your life and circumstances. Uh, But you do that not to acquire someone else's life, but to acquire your own, to become what God wants you to become, not to make you into someone else in their image, you say. Coveting is a repudiation of the life that God has given you to lead and work through. I'm not a great champion of what might be loosely called pop psychology and some of its tenets, but uh, the idea of accepting yourself, of valuing yourself, would seem to come in play here, and it would seem to be a really good foundation. Because our faith has very good news for the person who is simply worn down in hard things, or given up, or has little left but the bitter notion that I should have been born in somebody else's circumstances. But this is where I think Jesus can enter a life and work with a broken person. 
It shows us that there's something far greater, Jesus can show us this, far greater than giving up and simply wishing you were someone else. Because our God wants you to be you and wants you to be you in him. And your life, whatever it is, can be full of God's glory and beauty. And your life is eternally significant. And your life can be open to God's power to find peace and fulfillment, even in a life that's a shambles, that's been broken down. This puts a lie to it. The, the other man's grass is not greener. It's not. Remember that guy, Elton Trueblood? By the way, that's a wonderful name, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I quoted him earlier. I said it would come back to him. He said that, that this is, the greed is so deeply ingrained in the human, uh, human mind and heart that uh, you can't over, really overcome it unless you find a power that is you know, equal and opposite and, and ready to do battle to it. What is the power that will push back against coveting in our life? Well, this is True Blood's answer. The power of greed is so great that it cannot be handled in the end except by a still greater power, the redemptive power of Almighty God. God can do it. God's love is what can transform us. And you have to allow him to do it. When a person gives their life to Christ to be born again, that life will change. And something new will come out of it. And you know this experience as well as I do if you're a Christian. Look, I'm, I am very far from perfection. I, I haven't arrived. Don't look here for evidence of tremendous sainthood. But I know something new is in me working to express itself and it has declared war on coveting. It has said it must go. Well, for your abrupt conclusion... I want to draw a passage actually from the Gospel of John chapter 7 that, that um, doesn't mention coveting, but talks about the power of God in our life to change us. John, Gospel of 7. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That river will wash away our coveting along with the pain and frustration that has caused us. 